Brick Moon Fiction presents The Basic Tenets of War by Abby Waxman. The lady in the gray suit was concerned, and her expression made that clear. While England understands your position, Minister, we do not agree with it. Our early simulations show a slightly different outcome, and we respectfully suggest you redo the calculations. Under the table, her ankles were crossed neatly, and the sensors recorded no elevations in her heart rate or respiration. Only she knew that the back of her knees were sweating. The dark-skinned man sitting across from her smiled. Junior Minister, we assure you our forecasts are correct. He turned up his palms. Besides, ultimately the decisions rest with the United Nations, and we will abide by their tallies, as always. The lady frowned. Fair enough, but I remind you that the major discrepancies in the state estimates will result in penalties. He raised a single eyebrow. She was trying his patience. We don't need reminding of the basic tenets of war, madame. I find myself mildly insulted by your insinuations. The air in the room grew still. Ten years of training meant she didn't rise to the bait, bearing in mind she would face demotion if she allowed the opposing minister to sense weakness. Instead, she smiled a pussycat smile and rose. It has been a pleasure, as always, minister. We will meet again next week to finalize details. She put her papers in a simple briefcase and turned to leave. Indeed, madame. I expect to hear from the UNWA no later than the weekend. She said nothing, and as the door closed behind her, the Minister of War for Canada sighed. Ah, fucking British. Always such sticklers. The lady in the gray suit was escorted home by security forces, things being what they were with the dissenters. Despite the many and obvious advantages of the basic tenets of war, as adopted by the United Nations Agreement of 2098, some people still didn't realize how good they had it. Warladites, some called them. And everyone else just called them terrorists. Mummy! At least her kids were pleased to see her. Two little girls, both blissfully exempt, both focused on cartoons, dolls, the kittens they'd recently received, and the possibility of chocolate in their futures. Anna bent to hug them, and through the sweet cloud of their hair heard her husband's voice. How'd it go? She looked up and smiled at him. It was all right. Canada will win, of course, but hopefully it will be a close one. Her husband John, who was only partially exempt, and therefore more interested than most, frowned. But why even declare? What are they hoping to gain? Anna shrugged and started for the kitchen. I can't really talk about it. You know that. Casualties? She brought her eyebrows together a little, looking over at her children and checking they weren't listening. Just military. John looked relieved. No general pop. She shook her head and opened the fridge to see what she could throw together for dinner. John walked the kids to school the next morning. Anna had left before dawn to head over to the United Nations War Assessment Office. 
He knew this way of war was better than the old one, where the healthy were killed first, the countryside was blighted, and industries were decimated. But every time he felt the warmth his wife left in the bed, he could only think of her as death. The kids were babbling about something, and he smiled even though he wasn't sure if that was the right response. He couldn't stop thinking about Anna's work, and it didn't help that the war office poster seemed to be everywhere today. Let our taxes do the fighting, was facing him as he waited to cross with the light. And near to the girl's school was the one he hated the most. Losses we can afford. It was an older one, covering almost a whole block of brick wall. It's images of soldiers holding up the general population, a little faded here and there. The soldiers were a mixed bunch, of course. Some were just children, really, although you weren't allowed to call them that, with withered legs or strange faces. Here and there were older people, although those were getting rarer and rarer, of course. One really reminded him of his grandmother, herself only a distant memory, and maybe that's why he hated the poster so much. And of course there were criminals, marked by their black uniforms and shaved heads. That man is scary, Daddy, remarked his younger child, pointing to the man in the poster, one that leered out from the image, not looking up selflessly at the healthy and positive like the rest of the soldiers. John nodded. Well, not all of our soldiers are nice people, sweetheart. But they can still be useful, right? She nodded, recognizing the prompt. Yes, Daddy. Everyone helps in the way they can. Her older sister finished the slogan, and everybody can find a way to help. They'd passed the poster now as he dropped them off at school. John decided to walk home a different way. Anna was waiting, and her ass was getting numb. UNWA had been created after the dirty wars of the late 21st century, when the world was poisoned and the water was bad, and the problems of overpopulation had suddenly been solved by the deaths of billions in two months of remorseless, drug-resistant disease. The United Nations became the planet's newest country, with no homeland, but with the cast-iron neutral status that enabled it to put the tenets into action. Thousands of actuaries and statisticians were recruited to become UNWA citizens, and they took their work seriously. Now, a hundred years later, hardly anyone but the terrorists remembered any other way. All this commitment, however, didn't lead to efficiency, and Anna had been waiting for nearly an hour. This was par for the course, however, so she just sat there and reread the posters on the wall. She could recite them in her sleep, but the exercise stopped her eyes from sliding closed. The basic tenets of war. 1. War, as historically practiced, is immoral. 2. The young and healthy are to be preserved. 3. Costs and reparations can be assessed by technology. 4. Affordable losses can be sustained. 5. Natural resources cannot be the spoils of war. 6. The decisions of UNWA are final and binding. 
as adopted by the United Nations and all countries that are parties thereto. 2108. An inner door opened and a head popped out. Anna, we can see you now. She stood, straightened her skirt, and stepped into the office. The assessor today was young, female, and ready for business. She smiled for the regulation number of seconds and reached out for the paperwork. Anna handed it over, and she started flipping through it. I think it's all there, Anna said calmly. The girl nodded without looking up. Anna opened her mouth to ask a question, but closed it again. This girl wouldn't know why Canada had decided to declare war on England, normally an ally, and not actively involved in any of the shenanigans of the Middle East or Africa. It wasn't an assessor's job to know, and even less her job to ask questions. The whole point of UNWA was to remain neutral, uninvolved, and unmoved. If you wanted to get married or have kids, you had to renounce your citizenship and pick a different country. New citizens joined at 18 and stayed for a decade or two, sometimes more. It was considered a great service. And then, of course, there was the pension. It wasn't lifelong exemption. No one got that. But you'd never need to work again. Finally, the girl looked up. Okay, thanks. We'll be in touch. Did the Canadians submit their paperwork? The girl looked at Anna, and if she was surprised by the question, she didn't show it. I have no idea. I'm on your side, not theirs. She stood to indicate that Anna should leave. The assessor carried the paperwork back to her desk, snagging a donut from the communal kitchen on her way. No need to work hungry. She sat and opened the assessment program. She'd updated the software only the day before, and it was running smoothly again. She was pleased to see. Nothing more annoying than the fucking program glitching out and losing a morning's work. Okay. She started transcribing the numbers and calculations from the British Ministry into the program. Paper was so old school, but it meant greater security as it enabled the UNWA system to remain completely disconnected from any other network on the planet. It hadn't been, to start with, but dissenters had frequently hacked in and changed the calculations or declared universal peace, and it became irritating. Now they took the time to key everything in by hand. It felt good. It felt serious. She entered population numbers, she entered industrial strengths, weaknesses, and products. She entered the number of soldiers who could theoretically fight, even though those days were long gone. She entered the number of weapons and warheads and tanks and trucks and airplanes and ships England had, all of which existed, created to keep people employed, and destroyed carefully by those same people who then used the parts to build new planes and ships. Job security is the strongest security. She entered the strategy Anna had selected for this war, the strikes and counter-strikes she had planned against Canada. The junior minister had spent days poring over Canada's military capacity and had done her best to fight a paper war that would minimize damages and bring England close to winning, if possible. The girl entering the information had no opinion on it. That wasn't her job. Her job was to feed the machine and tend to its decisions.
The assessor sat back and finished her donut as the program cycled. She waited to see if the Canadian information was already in. If it was, then the program would generate a binding military assessment and this war would be over. Well, not totally over. As the costs would have to be levied, the casualties taken care of and confirmed, and the reparations settled. But her job would be done and she could move on. She was hoping to get a day off soon, to travel to one of the casualty sites and see firsthand how the next part of the system worked. She had big plans for her career. She wanted to move to a bigger account to handle more exciting warfare. Sadly, the Canadian info wasn't there. So the program just went into neutral mode and waited. The assessor basically did the same. The nearest casualty site, Aldershot Barracks, was only about 40 miles from where the assessor was sitting. Long, low buildings where the soldiers slept. Large, hangar-like buildings where they exercised. And even larger ones where they were killed, weighed, and award posthumous medals for bravery. At Aldershot, the commander was a woman named Alice. She was middle-aged, childless, of course and deeply, deeply depressed. She struggled with empathy, a subversive, unhealthy emotion as taboo as pity. When she'd started years ago, she hadn't even thought of the soldiers as human. But it was hard to watch them every day and not see their individuality. She was scared of becoming a dissenter because she needed this work and was used to it. As the trainers used to say at military management school, harden or hang. Already two of her cohort of graduates had killed themselves, and she was damned if she was going to join them. War, as historically practiced, was immoral. This way was much better. Young people, some as young as 18, had been allowed to choose to fight, despite the fact that they lacked a real sense of mortality. Hundreds of thousands of girls and boys filled with genetic promise. It was a tragedy she couldn't bear thinking about. Like every child, she'd learned the history of the tenets. After the pandemic burned itself out, the residual fragment of mankind was quite different than the rolling mass who'd existed before. People had lost their stomach for visible carnage. They'd finally seen too much of it. Over the next decade, they rebuilt their technology, most of which had been sitting fallow without electricity or people to tell it what to do. But now it had a purpose. Technology would save the world from war and keep the people pure and healthy. Brilliant minds developed software that made extremely accurate estimates of loss and damage based on the arsenals and capacities of opposing forces. Simple simulations would run to settle any proposed conflicts. Much, much cleaner. UNWA took the results of the simulations and turned them into reparation. Each combatant country paid up and signed a peace accord. UNWA controlled and regulated everything, and as the independent nation of Switzerland held all the actual money, the Swiss arranged the transfer of payment. And then, of course... Both countries would call. The dark genius of the tenets of war, and one that took a while to become truly appreciated by those in power, 
was that they allowed for socially acceptable house cleaning. The dirty wars had caused a long-term increase in birth defects, cancers, pulmonary problems, and mental instability. The pandemic left people fearful and paranoid about physical illness. This mindset made it easy to decide the defective should die for the perfect, that the sick and aging should redeem themselves by becoming soldiers rather than dependents. Everybody wins the new war. Aldershot Barracks held the youngest soldiers, de-weaponized to save on wear and tear. It turns out if you take children with a wide range of physical and mental disabilities and keep them physically confined, without any affection or individual attention, they grow lethargic and non-communicative, which was fine because no one communicated with them. But once they were old enough to stand and you herded them all together, they became unstable and aggressive. Bigger ones would attack smaller ones, and then you lost casualties that couldn't be counted properly, and it was all a pain in the neck. For a while, the authorities considered adding enrichment activities, balls and toys and things like that. But it turned out it was cheaper to simply remove their nails and pull their teeth as they came in. They still killed each other from time to time, but it took longer. And eventually the army learned to separate the bigger ones. Stock management was a science. Most days the soldiers milled about their barracks, muttering or singing or swaying in place. Occasionally you would catch one or two apparently talking to each other, if you could call it talking, and some of them would hold hands for no apparent reason. The sergeants thought it was funny and would sometimes separate these random pairings just for fun making bets on how long it would take a soldier to stop frantically looking for his or her friend. They were all morbidly obese, because casualties were measured in pounds, and giving them highly caloric food was cheap and easy. Of course, sometimes they collapsed under their own weight, but then at least they stopped moving around. Other bases held the old people, or the terminally ill, or the convicted, each had its challenges, of course. Old people talked incessantly to each other and tried to get out all the time. The terminally ill, or the victims of accidents, needed to be kept alive as long as possible so that they could die at a more applicable time. Criminals had a tendency to kill each other, which was destruction of military property, not to mention another unaccountable casualty. Alice had a degree in military force management, but the reality of war horrified and sickened her. She wished she'd chosen plumbing or accountancy instead and could be among the blissfully ignorant. She walked slowly along a suspended gantry, checking the battalion below. She could see one or two dead ones. She clicked her tongue. Someone wasn't doing their job. Although, to be fair, the sergeants were only a few IQ points away from being soldiers themselves. These dead ones were really small, probably only just walking. She radioed a sergeant to do a cleanup. As she walked back into her office, with its faded calendar from two years before, its awards for efficiency in battle, its motivational posters featuring glossy, 
healthy toddlers, unlike the ones lying dead on the hangar floor. The teletype machine began to chatter. Anna stood by her office window, reading UNWA's assessment of the English-Canadian War of May 2290. She still didn't know why Canada had decided to go to war. It probably had nothing to do with England, per se. She'd heard a rumor back in college that the French-American War of June 2157 was started by the French as a way to deal with the threatened takeover by government opposition. They knew they'd lose, but a large military loss enabled them to call their enemies and restore order. Maybe it was true, maybe it wasn't, and thoughts like that were discouraged. She focused again on the piece of paper. Canada had won, of course, but the victory was marginal. She'd done a good job. Casualties were low, and the major damage had been to Coventry, a manufacturing hub for planes and military machines. She looked down the page. A similar city in Ontario had been damaged, and as a result, both cities would be busy for months, first dismantling their stock of planes and vehicles, as called for in the reparations, then carefully rebuilding them for the next war. She sighed. That was probably the reason for Canada's declaration, a simple desire to keep people busy. The war was paid for by taxes, as were the reparations, so it was an easy way for people to pay to keep each other working. Maybe England had even met secretly with Canada and agreed to this little exchange of hostilities. She pulled the teletype machine closer and sent casualty numbers to Aldershot and damage requirements to Coventry. Then she stretched and wondered if she had time for a yoga class on the way home. War was hell on the shoulders. The soldiers had already been brought over to the big hangar, passing over the weighing platform as they entered, both of them ignoring the noise and watching the readout. At one point the sergeant raised his hand and the officers hurting the soldiers paused, pulling some back off the platforms. One more. An officer pushed a dark-haired toddler onto the platform, making him stumble. He had the withered lower legs of congenital radiation disease, but his naked, dirty upper half was well padded with visceral fat. The sergeant watched the numbers on the readout and said, I think we can cram in a little one if you have it. Another officer looked over the mass of children milling about in front of him. This one probably doesn't weigh all that much. How about it? The sergeant nodded and the officer tried to thread the kid through the crowd. It didn't work, so he just levered his hook under the kid's arm and threw her onto the weighing platform. She cried out when she hit the metal, but fell silent quickly, familiar with the hook. The sergeant was satisfied, and the officers began hurting the soldiers who didn't make the cut back into the storage hangar. Most went quietly, and they had sticks for those that didn't. The sergeant turned to Alice, who was writing down the weight of the soldiers on the form for UNWA. Okay? Sure. She nodded. Go ahead. Large metal shutters clanged down over the windows, 
sealing them shut and scaring the soldiers. Many of them began wailing. Some of them ran around a place, and others just stood there. Not that it mattered. Once the hangar was sealed, a long yellow machine moved over the weighing plate and into the hangar itself. It ran the width of the room and dispensed a foam that suffocated without causing physical damage, so the bodies could be weighed again, if necessary. The foam was thick, industrially pink, and smelled strongly of pine, giving Alice a fleeting memory of camping as a child with her family. That association was quickly replaced with more recent ones. This was not her first war. The machine was noisy, but the foam moved silently, and the soldiers stared at it with mute fascination. When it reached the first rows, they just stood there, not understanding, even as it engulfed them. Then they'd start to struggle for breath, cry out, and flounder. Panic filled the hangar, and hundreds of soldiers ran blindly for the far wall. Most couldn't run very well and stumbled and were crushed by the other children. Others made it to the wall and died there, suffocated by the foam or just by the press of bodies. The war office always claimed soldiers didn't feel pain the way normal people did, didn't form attachments, didn't have an understanding of life and death. But anyone who'd watched the army lose a one-sided battle knew that was a lie. Alice watched because it was her job and because she respected the sacrifice the army was making. Once the foam had stopped moving and was just a thick blanket over 10,000 children, she left the hangar. She submitted the battle report, the casualty forms. She looked out for the announcement that another war had been fought and won, or fought and lost. It made no difference. She would eat ice cream and take pills and go back and do it all over again. Everybody helps in the way they can. Anna came out of her yoga class and looked at the news ticker. Peace with Canada, it said. Thanks to the brave soldiers at home and abroad. Anna stepped off the sidewalk, wondering what to cook for dinner. She thought about the soldiers she'd had to concede to Canada. And then she thought maybe hamburgers would be good. Tomorrow she'd have another war to fight. But burgers tonight would mean victory at home. Smiling at her little joke the junior minister of war headed into the supermarket. Abby Waxman is a writer who lives and works in Los Angeles. She started her career in advertising, which is where she learned to lie for money. Her novel, The Garden of Small Beginnings, was just published by Berkeley and has nothing whatsoever to do with war. Amy Weaver is an actress, writer, and voiceover artist working and living in Los Angeles.